Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, make us those who delight in you. And in the hearing of your word today, use that word to make us those people. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Do please sit. Well, I wanted, as I said, to split a series on Galatians part this year and part in the new year to come. And before we hit Advent, that left us with five weeks. It seems sensible, therefore, to offer a series of uh, looking at the Psalms, which fall in five books. And we'll look at the first Psalm from each book over these weeks ahead. That seems to make sense. And then I looked at this psalm. With new eyes, I realised I'd never preached on it before. And I realised it's very odd. At least one uh, collection of the psalms in the original Hebrew actually doesn't have it as a psalm. The book of psalms in that collection starts at Psalm 2, and this is an introduction to the psalms. You know, there's little bits that begin the psalms often enough. Uh, for the director of music to the tune of the death of the son, a psalm of David, for example. This is kind of like an extended introduction uh, in at least that collection. And what makes it odd is that it is something like a psalm and something like a proverb. If you need to find your way to it, it's on page 543 of the Church Bibles. Well, more precisely, it's opposite 542. Proverbs is always talking about the company we keep, the ways we take, and the moral or immoral people we meet on the way. So is Psalm 1. And for the sake of getting something into the memory, at least as as long as lunchtime, I've divided it into four sections. Uh, Two loyalties, one law, one leaf, two lanes. It's pretty grotesque, but it may work. I want to begin with two loyalties. Uh, the, uh, The first couple of verses, blessed is the man. You might imagine that uh, if you just took those words, blessed is the man, what's going to come next? It's going to be full of joy and light and laughter and, and prayer and all those good things. The good side, if you like of what we had in those words about David that we all remembered. How surprising, then, is it begins with a negative. Blessed is the man who does not do the following things. It's actually one of those times where it doesn't need to be the word man. The original is just the word for an individual. But it is a single individual. Uh, it's, it's, It's a person who makes a stand, and that's probably why it is an individual, because it's someone who's not going to do the following things. Three verbs, Uh, he, in this case, doesn't do, for three different groups to avoid. The wicked here, and this is one of those things that you just have to, because uh, the the Hebrew doesn't have uh, as many words as English, so you've got to kind of do some mapping of words onto words. What it really means are all those who don't keep faith. It means the faithless. 
doesn't necessarily mean uh, the, um, uh, the, the strong sense of wicked that we might think of. We, we pray uh, this morning for those who are running Syria or uh, making the news uh, in abuse cases because they are, as we might think, wicked. But they're making the news because actually we don't know that many people like that. And in this uh, psalm, uh, we're not thinking about those primarily. We're thinking about those who tend to make promises that over time we've learned they probably won't keep. And I bet you know those people. People in the workplace who are habitual promisers but never keepers. And we're to avoid walking, following their counsel, their advice, their thinking, their talk, according to verse 1. We're also to avoid standing in the way of sinners. And this is a, um, a standing firm. We've moved from simply following now to an active determination to plant ourselves in a certain way of behaving. More than thinking now. It's a behaving. It's a standing. It's what I'm going to do. And the sin of the sinner, again, is not the deliberate decision, I am going to go and steal from my neighbor. But a kind of careless falling short for which we are nonetheless responsible. It's a neglect in doing what we know we should do more than it's a doing what we know we shouldn't. Now again, I reckon that probably takes it from the kind of uh, black hat, white hat, goody baddie, with the kind of the drama that you get in the psalm itself to the world that we meet all the time. We're likely to experience much more not doing what should be done than doing what shouldn't be done, I guess, in normal life. And uh, th- this is now a standing. This has developed into a pattern of life, a behavior pattern, a way, a fixed set of habits. Finally, avoid the seat of mockers. In the days of Israel, the wise elders of the town, there wouldn't have been a a building of a law court, there would simply have been the entrance to the town, and the wise elders would gather there to dispense justice. But this is a shadow form of all of that. This is those who like to gather in a gang and just sit, poking fun at all that is good and right and true. I can remember back to my school days, And there was always a a bunch of uh, lads, because it was that kind of school, uh, who who could guarantee anything that went on, they would turn into a matter of mockery and laughter. But perhaps outside school, you found people in that same category. They take strength in being together. What might sound ridiculous for one to say sounds oh so cool when there's a bunch of them. Avoid the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinner, and the seat of the mocker. The alternatives to the ways of God, thinking, behaving, belonging. That's a pretty fundamental choice in all of that. And again, we must know people who started being just a bit off, but then became hardened and ended up belonging to in the camp of the determined mocker with their loyalty completely swerved away from God's path. Now, I've been careful 
I've spoken of other people who think and behave and belong as they shouldn't. But it's us as well, isn't it? Elijah, the prophet, taunted the people of Israel. How long will you, go a, will you walk with a foot in both camps, worshipping God and worshipping the Baals? And how often have we tried to have a foot in both camps? Yes, we might not be wicked in a tabloid way, but we've promised and not been faithful. We can miss the mark and hope that someone thinks it was by accident, where in truth we knew perfectly well what we were doing and we were just neglectful of what we knew was the call of God to holiness. This is us in some measure. But blessed is the one who resolutely refuses the ways of the wicked, the sinner and the mocker, staying loyal to the one God. So those are two loyalties. Let's turn to one law. I'm aware that evangelicals in evangelical churches, and this is one, um, used to be renowned for reading the Bible daily. I'm also aware that every survey shows Bible reading to be declining, not just in the wide church, but in evangelical churches too. And so I suspect it's true among us. I don't hear anyone say, I don't read my Bible, but I'm struck now at how rarely, especially among the middle-aged, I hear anyone say that something of their Bible reading has touched them. And I know that Lucy, uh, as youth worker, reports it's a real struggle to get youngsters to believe that Bible reading is worth the effort. And actually, that's the point. We've come to believe that Bible reading should be relevant to us. And even putting it like that will make some of you go, oh, of course it's supposed to be relevant. But in modern times, we come to the reading of the Bible demanding that, like everything else in our consumerist lives, it should be relevant to the story that we already know, the story of ourselves. And immediately relevant, moreover. Whereas when the psalmist is writing, the language of delight is telling us something very different from that in verse 2. This is a community for whom the Bible is their story. And each individual's task is to see their own story as relevant to the big story there, described as God's dealings with his people. It's not that the Bible story was to be relevant to their lives, but that their lives were to be relevant to the Bible's story. Once we demand that it must be relevant to us, we're already on the wrong path. We're at the center. There will be all parts, all kinds of parts of Scripture that are truly dull, staggeringly uninspiring on the day that you read them. But who can tell what might happen in the future when that element might matter more than you suppose? I saw delight, real delight, as I've never seen it in the law of the Lord, one Friday evening in Jerusalem, in a modern Orthodox synagogue meeting in a school with a rope down the middle where our aisle would be, women and children one side, men on the other. I saw Jewish guys beating out a rhythm as the psalm was read, and dancing for sheer joy that this was their story. 
Not that it was relevant to them, but they were making themselves relevant to it. And that's delight. We say we will stay still and the Bible must come to us. They say the Bible stays still. It's the, 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 the planet with gravitational force. And it calls us, pulls us, draws us into its story. And they are the ones who have the right of it. Please don't teach your children that what matters about the Bible is that it helps. Because they will then stop reading it when it doesn't help. Get yourselves to the walk through the Bible, which is advertised in the green sheet this week, and learn what the Bible's story is. I reckon anyone over 15, well, 15 and over, would benefit. Now, it says uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And we do need to pay attention to this word, law, which is so difficult for us to grasp hold of, because we think of law as rules. Say the word, if I did one of those kind of, I'm going to say a word, you say the next word that comes into your head. If I said the word law, you'd probably say something like police or court or judge. That's not what it, that's not how the word resonates for the psalmist. The law uh, of the Lord in, uh, in those days is strictly the five books of uh, Genesis through to Deuteronomy that start the Old Testament where God's story, not just his commands, but his story of God and his people is set out. But actually throughout most of the Old Testament, that is described as the law of Israel. When it says the law of the Lord, it tends to encompass uh, basically what, what they would have called the Bible and what we would call the Old Testament. It's everything that is written it is the whole package that tells the story of how God called a people, created, called a people, suffered for them, uh, uh, walked with them, uh, let them, let them go as you let a child go, and then when they mess up, call them back. It's that love story that is the Old Testament. And that's what the psalmist means when he says, the law of the Lord. That is a law to delight in. It's not a matter of police and jury and courtrooms, although that's included. So one law, two loyalties, one law, and one leaf. The blessed individual is like a green tree. The wicked are like chaff. I don't think we need to spend long on that. In a hot, dry land, a tree is only going to flourish if it has a source of water. And the springs will run most of the year so that even in the hottest weather, its leaf does not wither. Verse 3. As the prophet Jeremiah said, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water. Its leaves are always green and it never fails to bear fruit. But that's why it's one leaf. It's not, it's not there's kind of a good leaf, a, a green leaf and a brown leaf. There's a green leaf here in this story, and the rest is just chaff. It's dry, weightless stuff. When you've brought in the harvest, you throw it all up into the air, and what's good comes down, and the chaff is the stuff that just gets blown away by the wind. And that's what the wicked are like. They seem so powerful now, but they won't even matter. They'll just, they'll just be gone in the day of the Lord. 
The images are easy. It's what they mean that's disturbing. Because do we believe it? Whatever he does, this man prospers. I bet some of you are not particularly wicked, not particularly sinful, not particularly a mocker. Maybe pretty good, actually, on this standard. But has everything you've ever done prospered? I doubt it. The Psalms, very quickly, after Psalm 1, are going to be full of the stories of the faithful who have not prospered. Of the faithless who do prosper. But the first psalm is the one that sets out the norm. That it is normal for the faithful to prosper. And we need to remember that that is indeed the norm. If we feel upset because we're not thriving, though we've uh, tried to live by Psalm 1, if we feel upset about that, we feel upset and we feel we're okay to be upset because it's breaking a norm. And the norm is that whatever he does prospers. The constant battle in the 19th century in urban areas was to deal with the up and outs. They would address themselves to the down and outs. And there would be newly converted Christians who they would want to stay in their areas of conversion and become missionaries themselves. But it was understandable that those who'd just become Christians wanted to change their address. They moved out. They were getting out of debt for the first time because they were giving up on alcohol and gambling. They were learning to read, to come to scripture. They were accessing employment for the first time. And so they moved up and out of their circumstances. They were cleaning up their lives, thriving for the first time. They were living in the norm. And they didn't want to sit with mockers anymore. It is the norm. And then finally, two lanes. It's two ways or paths, but wouldn't have begun with an L. Two loyalties, one law, one leaf, two lanes. In this verse 6, expressing final outcomes, the Lord God, Yahweh, rewards the faithful righteous, but the faithless perish. And it's almost, by, almost that that's the natural way of things. They're just, they're just blown away. The encouragement is not to rejoice in the burning judgment store, stored up for the wicked. It's just to recognize they won't finally matter. They're history. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The Lord's involved. But the way of the wicked, it'll perish. They won't finally matter. Well, the overall lesson of Psalm 1 is clear. Clear aim at godliness. Because of your delight in God's law. And you will then find you thrive in your relationship with God. It's the beginning of a psalm, so above all your relationship in prayer will prevail. The problem is, we think we've heard all that. We can kind of snooze our way through Psalm 1. Because we sort of know all that. The problem is living it. But we don't need to be told it all over again in order to get on with living it. So what do we do to live it? I read of some mission work yesterday uh, in Cambodia. 
Interesting, it's a part of the world close to the heart of John and Ruth Chambers. Uh, and uh, if you were surprised to hear the news of Ruth's death in our prayers, uh, so were we. Uh, we have no other news yet. We just know that she'd been relatively unwell in Oxford uh, and while John's in Indonesia uh, and has died. Uh, we will let you know more when, we, uh, when, we, when there is something to say. But this mission work of which I read yesterday was in Cambodia, Southeast Asia, where there is a Buddhist proverb, do good, get good. It's a a proverb of karma. And of course it's probably true that it's what your next door neighbour believes as well. If you do good stuff, good stuff will happen to you. And we can sometimes read the Old Testament as though that's what it's saying, Follow the law and you will thrive. We could perhaps read Psalm 1 that way. Follow the law and you will thrive. This is the the good man. And what he does prospers. Jolly good. Do good, get good. But that would be a complete misreading of the single word delight. When you're following the rule of karma, you are at the centre Your ambition is to get good. And in order to get good, you will do good. But when you delight, you're caught up into, you're lost in something bigger, something much more beautiful than your own little centre. And that's why it doesn't help sometimes if we think of law as rules, the law of God as rules. The law is the whole of God's story calling you to find your place in it. And that that Christian mission has deliberately adopted a different slogan for its mission work in Cambodia. Receive good, do good. Not get, not uh, uh, do good, get good, but receive good and get good. Delight happens when you realise that the story of the Bible, the story into which you are grafted, is that you have received good. Grace has called you, summoned you. This tree is not there by accident, notice. The tree is planted by the water, and you have been planted by the water. Grace has called you. And it's out of grace at being received that you can delight in God. Out of recognizing that this Bible is your story, that you can delight in God. And then, well, yes, of course you're going to want to follow his ways. You do good because you've been received good. And that's where this psalm is tied to the New Testament. God so loved the world, says John 3.16, That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. The way of the wicked will perish, but Jesus comes so that those who believe in him should not perish. And that doesn't mean that here is Psalm 1, that's in the Old Testament, don't need to pay any attention to that, because actually we've got Jesus, we've got John 3.16, we don't need 
the Old Testament. We don't need that psalm. But he's not opposed to it. He simply fulfills it. It is there to explain what delight looks like. There is nobody who has fulfilled Psalm 1. There is no man as blessed as Psalm 1 is describing, except one man, Jesus Christ, the man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, who never stood in the way of sinners, who never sat down with the mockers, whose delight was always in the law of the Lord. There's only one man who's ever done it. We should read Psalm 1 and say, yes, that's a great life, but I know it's not where I am. And we turn to Jesus, not to turn our back on Psalm 1, but to say, that's who you are. You are the man who's done this. You are the man with whom I can have the relationship so that I can be directed along the paths of Psalm 1. I suspect that we come to something like Psalm 1 and perhaps to other psalms, sort of thinking that we know this. Yes, it wants us to be nice and stop being horrible. But I suspect that if we pay attention to Psalm 1 and to the other psalms, we will find that they speak of a relationship with God that we barely know. We must not say to ourselves, well, we're Christians, we come later than Psalm 1, therefore we've got it more right than they ever did. What David is describing here is a delight that I suspect we've we've barely set out on the course of yet. It's a, a delight that we see in Jesus staying behind uh, when he's 12 uh, to debate with the teachers because he delights in the law and knows it and longs to engage with it. But I have barely begun. And I guess the same may well be true for lots of us. So as we finish, let's pray. Lord, we confess that so often we have demanded that your word be relevant to us. And because it hasn't been, we've turned away from it and said, oh, it's not worth the effort. Lord, you've received us as your children. You've loved the whole world and us in it so much as to give Jesus Christ. And what we see in the Jesus Christ you gave is one whose life lives out Psalm 1. Make us those who delight in the whole of your law, the whole of the story. Not because it always seems relevant or answers every little question we've come with, but because it's our story, simply. And out of that delight, strengthen within us the determination not uh, to walk the way of the wicked or to stand in the way of sinners or sit down with mockers. Strengthen that determination to have weight on the day of judgment because we delight in you and you in us, not to be that chaff that just 
ceases to matter. And perhaps because it is fresh news, it does just occur to me as we think of how John and Ruth Chambers, known to so many of us, delighting in the law of the Lord, longing to their dying day, Ruth's just passed and John's yet to come, to keep sharing the, the law of the Lord, the story of God and what he's done in Jesus Christ. We see there those who are blessed and have weight. And have known your delight in all kinds of ways. Give us some share of what we knew in them. Most of all, give us a Holy Spirit like the Spirit of Christ to dwell within. And to buttress our determination to delight in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.